Section number five of Harding's Luck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. Section five of Harding's Luck by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter three The Escape. When Lady Talbot leaned over the side of the bed to awaken Dickie Harding, she wished with all her heart that she had just such a little boy of her own. And when Dickie awoke and looked into her kind eyes, he felt quite sure that if he had had a mother, she would have been like this lady. Only about the face, he told himself, not the way she's got up, nor yet her hair, nor nothing of that sort. "'Did you sleep well?' she asked him, stroking his hair with extraordinary gentleness. "'A fair treat,' he said. "'Was your bed comfortable?' "'Ain't it soft, neither?' he asked. "'I don't know as I ever felt of anything quite as soft without it was the geese as hangs up along the Broadway Christmas time.' "'Why, the bed's made of goose feathers,' she said and Dickie was delighted by the coincidence. "'Have you got ere a little boy?' he asked, pursuing his first waking thought. "'No, dear. If I had, I could lend you some of his clothes. As it is, we shall have to put you into your own.' She spoke as though she were sorry. Dickie saw no matter for regret. "'My father, he bought me a little coat for when it was cold of a night lying out.' lying out where in the bed with the green curtains said dickie this led to here ward and dickie would willingly have told the whole story of that hero in full detail but the lady said after breakfast and now it was time for our bath and sure enough there was a bath of steaming water before the fireplace which was in quite another part of the room so that Dickie had not noticed the cans being brought in by a maid in a pink print dress and a white cap and apron. Come, said the lady, turning back the bedclothes. Somehow Dickie could not bear to let that lady see him crawl clumsily across the floor, as he had to do when he moved without his crutch. It was not because he thought she would make fun of him, Perhaps it was because he knew she would not. And yet, without his crutch, how else was he to get to that bath? And for no reason that he could have given, he began to cry. The lady's arms were around him in an instant. What is it, dear? Whatever is it? she asked. And Dickie sobbed out. I ain't got my crutch, and I can't go to that there bath without it. Anything a do if twas only an old broom cut down to me eyes. I'm a cripple, they call it, you see. I can't walk like what you can. She carried him to the bath. There was scented soap. There was a sponge and a warm, fluffy towel. I ain't had a bath since Gravesend, said Dickie, and flushed at the indiscretion. Since when, dear? Since Wednesday said Dickie anxiously. He and the lady had breakfast together in a big room with long windows that the sun shone in at, and, outside, a green garden. 
there were a lot of things to eat and silver dishes and the very eggs had silver cups to sit in and all the spoons and forks had dogs scratched on them like the one that was carved on the footboard of the bed upstairs all except the little slender spoon that dickie had to eat his egg with and on that there was no dog but something quite different why he said his face brightening with joyous recognition my tinkler's got this on it just the very moral of it so he has then he had to tell all about tinkler and the lady looked thoughtful and interested and when the gentleman came in and kissed her and said how were we this morning dickie had to tell about tinkler all over again and then the lady said several things very quickly beginning with i told you so edward and ending with i knew he wasn't a common child dickie missed the middle part of what she said because of the way his egg behaved suddenly bursting all down one side and running over into the salt which of course had to be stopped at all costs by some means or other the tongue was the easiest the gentleman laughed way don't eat the egg cup he said we shall want it again have another egg but dickie's pride was hurt and he wouldn't the gentleman must be very stupid he thought not to know the difference between licking and eating and as if anybody could eat an egg cup anyhow he was glad when the gentleman went away after breakfast dickie was measured for a crutch that is to say a broom was held up beside him and a piece cut off its handle then the lady wrapped flannel around the hairy part of the broom and sewed black velvet over that it was a beautiful crutch and dickie said so also he showed his gratitude by inviting the lady to look how spry he was on his pins but she only looked a very little while and then turned and gazed out of the window so dickie had a good look at the room and the furniture it was all different from anything he ever remembered seeing and yet he couldn't help thinking he had seen them before these high-backed chairs covered with flowers like on carpets the carved bookcases with rows on rows of golden beaded books the bow-fronted shining sideboard with handles that shone like gold and the corner cupboard with glass doors and china inside red and blue and goldy it was a very odd feeling i don't think that i can describe it better than by saying that he looked at all these things with a double pleasure the pleasure of looking at new and beautiful things and the pleasure of seeing again things old and beautiful which he had not seen for a very long time his limping survey of the room ended at the windows when the lady turned suddenly knelt down put her hand under his chin and looked into his eyes dickie she said how would you like to stay here and be my little boy i'd like it right enough he said only i got to go back to father but if father says you may he won't said dickie with certainty and besides there's tinkler well you're to stay here and be my little boy till we find out where father is 
we shall let the police know they're sure to find him the police dickie cried in horror why father he ain't done nothing no no of course not said the lady in a hurry but the police know all sorts of things about where people are i know and what they're doing even when they haven't done anything the police knows a jolly sight too much said dickie in gloom and now all dickie's little soul was filled with one longing all his little brain awake to only one thought the police were to be set on the track of beale the man whom he called father the man who had been kind to him and wheeled him in a perambulator for miles and miles through enchanted country the man who had bought him a little coat to put on o nights if it was cold or wet the man who had shown him the wonderful world to which he awakens who has slept in the bed with the green curtains the lady's house was more beautiful than anything he had ever imagined not more beautiful than certain things that he almost imagined that he remembered the lady was better than beautiful she was dear her eyes were the eyes to which it is good to laugh her arms were the arms in which it is good to cry the tree-dotted parkland was to dicky the land of heart's desire but father beale who had been kind whom dicky loved the lady left him alone with a book beautiful beyond his dreams three great volumes with pictures of things that had happened and been since the days of hereward himself the author's charming name was green and recalled curtains and nights under the stars but even those beautiful pictures could not keep dicky's thoughts from mr beale father by adoption and love if the police were set to find out where he was and what he was doing somehow or other dicky must go to gravesend to that house where there had been a bath or something like it in a pail and where kindly tramp people had toasted herrings and given apples to little boys who helped he had helped then and by all the laws of fair play there ought to be someone now to help him the beautiful book lay on the table before him but he no longer saw it he no longer cared for it all he cared for was to find a friend who would help him and he found one and the friend who helped him was an enemy the smart pink frocked white-capped white-aproned maid who unseen by dicky had brought the bath-water and the bath came in with a duster she looked malevolently at dicky shovin yourself in she said rudely i ain't he said if she wants to make a fool of a kid ain't i got clever brothers and sisters inquired the maid her chin in the air nobody says you ain't and nobody ain't making a fool of me said dicky oh no course they ain't the maid rejoined people comes ere without air shirt to their backs and makes fools of their betters that's the way it is ain't it ain't she arst you to stay and be her little boy 
Yes, Dickie said. Ah, I thought ye ad, said the maid triumphantly, and you'll stay. But if I'm expected to call you master, whatever your silly name is, I gives you a month's warning, so I tell you straight. I don't want to stay, said Dickie, at last. Oh, tell me another, said the girl impatiently, and left him without having made the slightest use of the duster. Dickie was taken for a drive in a little carriage, drawn by a cream-colored pony with a long tail, a perfect dream of a pony, and the lady allowed him to hold the reins. But even amid this delight, he remembered to ask whether she had put the police on to father yet, and was relieved to hear that she had not. It was Markham who was told to wash Dickie's hands when the drive was over, and Markham was the enemy with the clever brothers and sisters. Wash him yourself, she said, among the soap and silver and marble and sponges. It ain't my work. You'd better, said Dickie, or the lady'll know the difference. It ain't my work neither, and I ain't so used to washing as what you are, and that's the truth. So she washed him, not very gently. It's no use getting your knife into me, he said as the towel was plied. I didn't arse to come here, did I? No, you little thief. Stow that, said Dickie, and after a quick glance at his set lips, she said, Well, next door to, anyhow. I should be ashamed to show my face here if I was you after last night. There, you're dry now. Cut along down to the dining-room. The servants' hall's good enough for honest people as don't break into houses. All through that day of wonder, which included real roses that you could pick and smell, and real gooseberries that you could gather and eat, as well as picture books, a clockwork bear, a musical box, and a doll's house almost as big as a small villa, an idea kept on hammering at the other side of a locked door in Dickie's mind. And when he was in bed, it got the door open and came out and looked at him, and he recognized it at once as a really useful idea. Markham will bring you some warm milk. Drink it up and sleep well, darling, said the lady. And with the idea very near and plain, he put his arms round her neck and hugged her. Good-bye, he said. You are good. I do love you. The lady went away very pleased. When Markham came with the milk, Dickie said, You want me gone, don't you? Markham said she didn't care. Well, but how am I to get away with my crutch? Mean to say you'd cut and run if you was the same as me? About the legs, I mean? Yes, said Dickie. And not nick anything? Not a bloomin' thing, he said. Well, said Markham, you've got a spirit, I will say that. You see, said Dickie, I wants to get back to Farver. Bless the child, said Markham, quite affected by this. Why don't you help me get out? Once I was outside the park, I'd do all right. Much as my place is worth, said Markham, 
Don't you say another word getting me into trouble. But Dickie said a good many other words, and fell asleep quite satisfied with the last words that had fallen from Markham. These words were, We'll see. It was only just daylight when Markham woke him. She dressed him hurriedly, and carried him and his crutch down the back stairs and into that very butler's pantry through whose window he had crept at the bidding of the red-haired man. No one else seemed to be about. Now, she said, the gardener has got a few hampers ready, fruit and flowers and the like, and he drives em to the station for anyone's up. They'd only go to waste if he wasn't to sell em, see? And he's a particular friend of mine, and he won't mind an extra hamper more or less. So out with you. Joe, she whispered, you there? Joe outside whispered that he was, and Markham lifted Dickie to the window. As she did so, she kissed him. Cheerio, old chap, she said. I'm sorry I was so short, and you do want to get out of it, don't you? No error, said Dickie, and I'll never split anything about him selling the vegetables and things. You're too sharp to live, Markham declared. And the next moment he was through the window, and Joe was laying him in a long hamper, half filled with straw that stood waiting. I'll put you in the van along with the other hampers, whispered Joe as he shut the lid. Then when you're in the train you just cut the string with this ear little knife I'll make you a present of, and out you gets. I'll make it all right with the guard. He knows me, and he'll put you down at whatever station you say. Here, don't forget his breakfast, said Markham, reaching her arm through the window. It was a wonderful breakfast. Five cold rissoles, a lot of bread and butter, two slices of cake, and a bottle of milk. And it was fun eating agreeable and unusual things, lying down in the roomy hamper among the smooth straw. The jolting of the cart did not worry Dickie at all. He was used to the perambulator, and he ate as much as he wanted to eat. And when that was done, he put the rest in his pocket and curled up comfortably on the straw, for there was still quite a lot left of what ordinary people consider night and also there was quite a lot left of the sleepiness in which he had gone to bed at the end of the wonderful day. It was not only just body sleepiness, the kind you get after a long walk or a long play-day. It was mind sleepiness. Dickie had gone through so much in the last thirty-six hours that his poor little brain felt quite worn out. He fell asleep among the straw, fingering the clasp-knife in his pocket, thinking how smartly he would cut the string when the time came. And he slept for a very long time, such a long time that when he did wake up there was no longer any need to cut the string of the hamper. Someone else had done that, and the lid of the basket was open, and three or four faces looked down at Dickie, and a girl's voice said, Why? It's a little boy, and a crutch. Oh, dear! Dickie sat up. The little crutch, which was lying cornerwise above him in the hamper, jerked out and rattled on the floor. Well, I never did, never, 
said another voice. Come out, dearie. Don't be frightened. How kind people are, Dickie thought, and he reached his hands to the slender white hands that were held out to him. A lady in black, her figure was as slender as her hands, drew him up, put her arms round him, and lifted him on to a black bentwood chair. His eyes, turning swiftly here and there, showed him that he was in a shop, a shop full of flowers and fruit. "'Mr. Rosenberg,' said the slender lady, "'oh, do come here, please. This extra hamper?' A dark, handsome, big-nosed man came towards them. "'It's a dear little boy,' said the slender lady, who had a pale, kind face, dark eyes, and very red lips. "'It's a practical joke, I suppose,' said the dark man. "'Our gardening friend wants a lithothon, and I'll see he gets it.' "'It wasn't his fault,' said Dickie, wriggling earnestly in his high chair. "'It was my fault. I fell asleep.' The girls crowded round him with questions and caresses. "'I ought to have cut the string in the train and told the guard. He's a friend of the gardener's,' he said. "'But I was asleep. I don't know as I ever slept so sound afore, like as if I'd had sleepy stuff, you know, like they give me at the orspital. I should not like to think that Markham had gone so far as to put sleepy stuff in that bottle of milk, but I'm afraid she was not very particular, and she may have thought it best to send Dickie to sleep so that he could not betray her or her gardener friend until he was very far away from both of them. But why? asked the long-nosed gentleman. Why put both in baskets? Upsetting everybody like this, he added crossly. It was, said Dickie slowly, a sort of joke. I don't want to go upsetting of people. If you'll lift me down and give me my crutch, I'll look it but the young ladies would not hear of his hooking it. "'We may keep him, mayn't we, Miss Rosenberg?' they said, and he judged that Mr. Rosenberg was a kind man, or they would not have dared to speak so to him. "'Let's keep him till closing time, and then one of us will see him home. He lives in London. He says so.' Dickie had indeed murmured words to this effect, as policemen called it, when they were not quite sure what people really have said. "'As you like,' said Mr. Rosenberg. "'Only you mustn't let him interfere with business. That's all.' They took him away to the back of the shop. They were dear girls, and they were very nice to Dickie. They gave him grapes and a banana and some Marie biscuits, and they folded sacks for him to lie on. And Dickie liked them and was grateful to them and watched his opportunity, because, however kind people were, there was one thing he had to do, to get back to Gravesend Lodging House, as his father had told him to do. The opportunity did not come till late in the afternoon, when one of the girls was boiling a kettle on a spirit lamp, and one had gone out to get cakes in Dickie's honor, which made him uncomfortable, but duty is duty, 
and over the Gravesend lodging house the star of duty shone and beckoned. The third young lady and Mr. Rosenberg were engaged in animated explanations with a fair young gentleman about a basket of roses that had been ordered and had not been sent. Cath, Mr. Rosenberg was saying, Cath down and Thur's speedy delivery. And the young lady was saying, I'm extremely sorry, sir, it was a misunderstanding. And to the music of their two voices, Dickie edged along close to the grapes and melons, holding on to the shelf on which they lay, so as not to attract attention by the tap-tapping of his crutch. He passed silently and slowly between the rose-filled window and the heap of bananas that adorned the other side of the doorway, turned the corner, threw his arm over his crutch, and legged away for dear life down a sort of covered arcade, turned its corner, and found himself in a wilderness of baskets and carts and vegetables, threaded his way through them in and out among the baskets, over fallen cabbage leaves, under horses' noses, found a quiet street, a still quieter archway, pulled out the knife, however his adventure ended, he used that knife to the good, and prepared to cut the money out of the belt Mr. Beale had buckled round him. And the belt was not there. He had dropped it somewhere? Or had he and Markham, in the hurry of that twilight dressing, forgot to put it on? He did not know. All he knew was that the belt was not on him, and that he was alone in London, without money, and that at Gravesend his father was waiting for him, waiting, waiting. Dickie knew what it meant to wait. He went out into the street, and asked the first good-natured-looking loafer he saw the way to Gravesend. "'Way to your grandmother?' said the loafer. "'Don't you come saucing of me?' "'But which is the way?' said Dickie. The man looked hard at him, and then pointed with a grimy thumb over his shoulder. "'It's thirty mile if it's a yard,' he said. "'Got any chink?' "'I lost it,' said Dickie. "'My father's there waiting for me.' "'Garn,' said the man. "'You don't kid me so easy. "'I ain't arstin' you for anything except the way,' said Dickie. "'More you ain't,' said the man. "'Hesitated and pulled his hand out of his pocket. Ain't kiddin'? Sure. Father at Gravesend? Take your Bible? Yes, said Dickie. Then you take the first to the right, and the first to the left, and you'll get a blue bus as'll take you to the elephant. That's a bit of the way. Then you arst again, and ere this'll pay for the bus. He held out coppers. This practical kindness went to Dickie's heart more than all the kisses of the young ladies in the flower shop. The tears came into his eyes. "'Well, you are a pal, and no error,' he said. "'Do the same for you some day,' he added. The lounging man laughed. "'We'll hold you to that, matey,' he said. 
when you're a-ridin' in your carriage and pair praps you'll take me on to be your footman when i am i will said dickie quite seriously and then they both laughed the elephant and castle marks but a very short stage of the weary way between london and gravesend when he got out of the tram dickie asked the way again this time of a woman who was selling matches in the gutter she pointed with a blue box she held in her hand it's a long way she said in a tired voice nigh on thirty mile thank you missus said dickie and set out quite simply to walk those miles nearly thirty the way lay down the old kent road and presently dickie was in familiar surroundings for old kent road leads into the new cross road and that runs right through the yellow brick wilderness where dickie's aunt lived he dared not follow the road through those well-known scenes at any moment he might meet his aunt and if he met his aunt he preferred not to think of it outside the marquis of granby stood a van and the horses heads were turned away from london if one could get a lift dickie looked anxiously to the right and left in front and behind there were wooden boxes in the van a lot of them and on the canvas of the tilt was painted in fat white letters fry's tonic the only cure there would be room on top of the boxes they did not reach within two feet of the tilt should he ask for a lift when the carter came out of the marquee or should he if he could climb up and hide on the boxes and take his chance of discovery on the lift he laid a hand on the tailboard hey dicky said a voice surprisingly in his ear that you dicky owned that it was with the feeling of a trapped wild animal and turned and faced a boy of his own age a schoolfellow the one in fact who had christened him dot and go one oh what a turn you give me he said thought you was my aunt don't you let on you seen me where you been asked the boy curiously oh all about dickie answered vaguely don't you tell me aunt your aunt don't you know the boy was quite contemptuous with him for not knowing no 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 what she shot the moon old hurl moved her says he don't remember where to she give him a pint to forgets what i say who's livin there now dickie asked interested in his aunt's address swallowed up in a sudden desperate anxiety no one don't live there it's shut up to let apply roberts seven nine six broadway said the boy i say what'll you do i don't know said dickie turning away from the van which had abruptly become unimportant which way you goin down home go past your old shop coming no said dickie so long see you again some day i gotta go this way and he went it all the same 
the twilight saw him creeping down the old road to the house whose back yard had held the rabbit hutch the garden where he had sowed the parrot food and where the moonflowers had come up so white and beautiful what a long time ago it was only a month really but all the same what a long time the news of his aunt's departure had changed everything the steadfast desire to get to gravesend to find his father had given way at any rate for the moment to a burning anxiety about tinkler and the white stone had his aunt found them and taken them away if she hadn't and they were still there would it not be wise to get them at once because of course someone else might take the house and find the treasures yes it would certainly be wise to go to-night to get in by the front window the catch had always been broken to find the treasures or at any rate to make quite sure whether he had lost them or not no one noticed him as he came down the street very close to the railings there were so many boys in the streets in that part of the world and the front window went up easily he climbed in dragging his crutch after him he got upstairs very quickly on hands and knees went straight to the loose board dislodged it felt in the hollow below oh joy his hands found the soft bundle of rags that he knew held tinkler and the seal he put them inside the front of his shirt and shuffled down it was not too late to do a mile or two of the gravesend road but the moonflower he would love to have one more look at that he got out into the garden there stood the stalk of the flower very tall in the deepening dusk he touched the stalk it was dry and hard three or four little dry things fell from above and rattled on his head seeds of course said dickie who knew more about seeds now than he had done when he saved the parrot seeds one does not tramp the country for a month at dickie's age without learning something about seeds he got out the knife that should have cut the string of the basket in the train opened it and cut the stalk of the moonflower very carefully so that none of the seeds should be and only a few were lost he crept into the house holding the stalk upright and steady as an acolyte carries a processional cross the house was quite dark now but a street lamp threw its light into the front room bare empty and dusty there was a torn newspaper on the floor he spread a sheet of it out kneeled by it and shook the moonflower head over it the seeds came rattling out dozens and dozens of them they were bigger than sunflower seeds and flatter and rounder and they shone like silver or like the pods of the plant we call honesty oh beautiful beautiful said dicky letting the smooth shapes slide through his fingers have you ever played with mother-of-pearl card counters the seeds of the moonflower were like those he pulled out tinkler and the seal 
and laid them on the heap of seeds, and then knew quite suddenly that he was too tired to travel any further that night. All those here, he said, there's plenty papers. He knew by experience that, as bedclothes, newspapers were warm, if noisy, and get on in the morning afore people's up. He collected all the paper and straw. There was a good deal littered about in the house, and made a heap in the corner, out of the way of the window. He did not feel afraid of sleeping in an empty house, only very lordly and magnificent, because he had the whole house to himself. The food still left in his pockets served for supper, and you could drink quite well at the wash-house tap by putting your head under and turning it on very slowly. And for a final enjoyment, he laid out his treasure on the newspaper, Tinkler and the seal in the middle, and the pearly counters arranged in patterns around them, circles and squares and oblongs. The seeds lay very flat and fitted close together. They were excellent for making patterns with, and presently he made, with triple lines of silvery seeds, a six-pointed star, with the rattle and the seal in the middle, and the light from the street lamp shone brightly on it all. That's the prettiest of the lot, said Dickie Harding, alone in the empty house. And then the magic began. End of section 5, chapter 3, The Escape. Recording by Sandra Estenson.